We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Big news today is the Bank of Canada has raised the interest rates once again and now the highest in 22 years. <gasps> oh, man. Uh, there you go. 5% is the uh, home base rate now. Everything else uh, jumps beyond that. So Bank of Canada has, uh, uh, and I guess it was much predicted, unlike the last one, uh, so uh, it is up again, highest in 22 years, 5% uh, is the Bank of Canada rate uh, at this point. All right, let's move on. That's enough of good news there. Uh, BC still, uh, their port strike is a uh, big to-do, and uh, government getting lots of pressure to get this uh, moving and get people back to work and the goods and services moving and such. And as a matter of fact, uh, at the Premier's meeting in Winnipeg, uh, the BC port strike was a massive uh, part of their discussion as they talked about the need for a national housing plan. And the Prime Minister should be there to talk about a national housing plan because what we're experiencing here in Hamilton or the rest of Ontario or the rest of wherever is the same as it is right the way across the country. And the Premiers would like a, uh, a national strategy on housing and infrastructure and want the PM to be a part of that because everybody, again, is sharing with the, the same issues that just nothing has been built, it seems, uh, prior to the pandemic for about the last 20, 25 years. And uh, whether it's East, West, Atlantic or the Western provinces, what have you, uh, they're all screaming for help with infrastructure. And if you want to get people working and if you want to get people making good money and jobs, uh, that's one of the key ways of doing it. Here's what Premier Doug Ford had to say when he was asked about housing and that issue in these meetings. When it comes to housing, uh, I always look for cooperation and collaboration with all three levels of government, municipal, provincial, and and federal, and uh, any help the federal government can uh, give us. I'm, I'm all uh, open to any ideas that they have. And this was something that we were talking about yesterday, and as we were talking housing quite a bit, uh, and, and you know, I, I know people, especially on the extremes, whether it's the extreme left or the extreme right, all have various opinions on this. Uh, but when you get uh, four major political parties in the last provincial election all demanding to build uh, a million homes, you have to ask yourself the question, how the hell did we get here? How did we get here? It's because people have not taken action. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there is a shortage of housing. And if there's a shortage of housing for the middle class, there's, of course, going to be a greater shortage of housing for those that are trying to be a part of the middle class, as the prime minister so quickly uh, points out. But, you know, another issue, again, we were talking about this yesterday. We're talking about the stress on our health care system. We're talking about we don't have enough houses for people. we got people living in tents. And yet immigration numbers are going anywhere from half a million to a million uh, people every single year. And where are we going to put them 
if people are living in tents across the country. I just want to remind everyone, 504,000 people landed in Ontario, fastest growing jurisdiction in all of North America, bar none. And what comes with the housing is infrastructure. We have to focus on infrastructure right across this uh, country. And no matter if it's the roads or the bridges, infrastructure in Ontario, the 413, the Bradford Bypass, and many other highways that we're building. So we look forward to uh, partnering with, with all three levels of government. So there you have it. Uh, lots of, of chatter around a national housing and infrastructure policy that is needed. This is not a strong suit for this government. Uh, they're interested in redistributing wealth as opposed to growing the economy or, or, or building anything for that matter. As we talked yesterday, uh, just build seems to be a bad word. And now we're heavily paying the price. Uh, on the note, uh, also, uh, you know, when you, when you see the premiers together, they also get asked local questions. A reporter asking Doug Ford, uh, the premier, in regard to Olivia Chow uh, being sworn in as mayor of Toronto and her comments that she was going to take Doug Ford to court and uh, the Ontario government and Ontario place. And here's what... Uh, the premier had to say the comments are disappointing uh you know already first comments that we're going to court well anyways i, I work with anyone i've proved i'll work with anyone i have a great relationship with andrew horvath a former ndp leader I have a great relationship with stephen del duca they both ran against me and uh, i just believe in working collaboratively together we need housing in toronto and the gta and right across ontario so that's what we're going to be focusing on and hopefully uh She'll be uh, open-minded and work uh, collaboratively uh, with us. Uh, and, of course, the, the new mayor talking about having a safer city, a city with more hope. But, again, you know, I, I think people have heard it. Sunny ways. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. People want action. People want stuff built. We have not been building. We're not doing anything. Young people have no hope. They can't afford houses. And I don't think they're going to sit back and say, well, that's the new norm, kids. No, we have a shortage because nobody's been building. And it doesn't matter whether it's the middle class or those that are trying to join it. Everyone is feeling this. Everyone is feeling the tax burden. Everyone is feeling inflation. And, of course, interest rates just going up again today. And yet we're more concerned of Saving all of these things that we're trying to save every day of our lives for as long as we've been on the planet. A better environment. Safer streets. No guns. All of that. We all want that. You could take a page out of any day in history. We all want that. But what are you doing today? What are you building? What accomplishments have you made? Those are the questions uh, a very fat Canada should be asking itself when they look at its leadership. If you remember watching the movie, the Johnny Cash biopic, uh, it was during that song, a legendary moment in history, as well as the history of the city of London, Ontario. And it's being memorialized in a brand new mural on the north wall of Budweiser Gardens in London during the concert at London Gardens. On February 22nd, 1968, Johnny Cash stopped the show during the middle of that song to propose to June Carter in front of a crowd of 7,000, saying he wouldn't sing another, another note until he got an answer. The rest of it is history, as they say. And to talk more about all of this, Natalie Wakabeshi is with us, Director of Culture and Entertainment Tourism with the City of London, and here now. Natalie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thanks. You too. 
So uh, describe what is on the side of Budweiser Gardens right now. Yeah, we're uh, super thrilled to see this one come to life. It is a rendering of the actual image of Johnny proposing to June on stage at the London Gardens. It's done by artist Kevin Lido out of Montreal, and he's known for his colors and kind of abstractness to the, the I guess, images or the faces, the portraits that he does. And, uh, you know, he did a really great talk this week about how it was really difficult for him to look at the man in black and to put color to the man in black. But I think if you look at any of the photos online, you'll be able to see that there's certainly um, he's done some great job of adding some color to this iconic moment in London's music history. It looks absolutely fabulous. And what an incredible uh, what an incredible idea for the, the city of London to do this and, and to create this, uh, you know, memorialize this historic moment in London on the side of, uh, you know, of your entertainment complex. How did this all come about? Yeah, you know, actually, it was Johnny Cash's official Instagram page that posted the photo uh, in 2022 on the anniversary date um, and said on this date. In London, Ontario, Johnny proposed to June on stage. And I think I saw the image, as did Andrew Gunn from Gunn Consulting. And he's, you know, a fantastic um, community member in St. Thomas that has done some incredible murals and projects there. And we kind of both called each other and said, I think this needs to go up in London. And how do we make this happen? And so it takes a little bit of time. By the time you line up the proper funders and you get the right artists behind it and you get the proper approvals at the City of London. But we're thrilled to have this one happen and to know that. The moment happened at the London Gardens back in the 60s. You know, the London Gardens back then served as a community hub and a connection place for Londoners to go for events and sporting events and games and things like that. And that's exactly the way Budweiser Gardens serves our community now. And it's a marquee venue, and we're really excited to have it on on the side of, of the building now. And that would have been a massive night, not only for London, but for any fans of Johnny Cash. And, and, and again, especially at this time of his uh, career, was the process difficult? Are you surprised? It, you know, it, it, when you think about it, just taking a couple of years to do this, it's not too bad. It wasn't too bad at all. I mean, we're certainly fortunate to be able to expedite a few things now that, you know, tourism, we're a part of the city of London. So we're able to talk to the right people and, and figure out how to go about this um, and to find the funds quickly. But you know, I think what's most amazing for us has been the reactions from the community. It, the stories that have come out, you would think that all of London when it might have been at that concert, to be honest. If you were <laughs> reading comments and you're hearing commentary, people can tell you where they were. Um, their parents may have been there. This story they may have heard at the dinner table for, you know, the last 40, 50, 60 years. It's pretty incredible. So I think it's it's gotten some really fantastic reception. I know Everyone, uh, I've heard some comments they would have loved it in the East End on the former London Gardens site. But I think when you talk about the future of London and where we're going, Budweiser Gardens and the downtown core and mm. our UNESCO City of Music designation, it's a perfect tie. Dundas Place that it faces north onto um, is an investment by the City of London in creating a pedestrian-friendly and cyclist-friendly street. And so the ability to host major events on that street is a big piece and component to our core. And now it has a beautiful, colorful backdrop and a mural uh, to be able to do so. So we're really excited for that one to come to life. Are you surprised, Natalie, at the amount of buzz that it's generated in London? I mean, like you said, I, I'm sure people that uh, are coming out to see it even. They are. And, you know, i got to tell you, there's an aspect to that that, you know, I think we're always hopeful that we get it, but I think in this case, we were a little confident we would as well. Having heard 
some of the stories. I mean, when Walk the Line debuted in theaters, there were um, interviews and, and news stories done then, you know, the 15 or 20 years ago when that happened. And mm-hmm. what's even amazing is, um, you know, to hear pe- people's personal connections. But I also just think we're looking for a good time story and, and tourism is built around storytelling. We're in the business mm-hmm. of convincing someone to want to travel to our destination. And more than that, we're also in the business of convincing a Londoner to be proud of the community that they live in. And if they have connection to the art that they see, to the culture around them, to the events being hosted, then they're more likely to want to tell their friend to want to come and visit. And that word of mouth advertising is the best we can get in tourism. So we certainly were hopeful and it's turned out even better than we thought. Well said. Good for you. Uh, anyone that you've talked to, any stories stand out about those that have, may have seen the show? Oh, I mean, people will tell you that their their parents or they were in the very front row or that they were there and they could recite for you like what happened moment by moment. <laughs> um, I There was one woman on social media who said that this story has been told at her dinner table for as long as she can remember. Like it just for her parents, it was it was their one of their greatest moments that they got to be a part of. So really neat. And, you know, London Connection, Saul Cash's manager, Johnny Cash's manager was a Londoner. And so Johnny played a lot of shows here. And I think it's a little yeah. pride um, that goes along with it. And with the location of the mural on Dundas Place, London is home to one of the only municipal um, hall of fame. And so we have a London Music Hall of Fame. And it's just two blocks down from where this mural is located. And they've got a little Johnny Cash tribute in there. So it's a perfect tie-in and, and kind of a great way to spend an afternoon. Good for London. That's amazing. Uh, and, of course, if you haven't seen the movie, Walk the Line in at the scene where Johnny proposes to June and it all happened in London, Ontario. Now that memorialized with a beautiful uh, mural on the side of Budweiser Gardens. Natalie, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thanks so much. You too. As we were talking about earlier on, Prime Ministers, or sorry, the Premiers, are all in uh, Winnipeg this week, a three-day meeting, I think, winding up today, and uh, in front of uh, in front of a news conference today, we're saying that there is a need for a national uh, infrastructure strategy, much like they needed a strategy for healthcare in a post-pandemic world. Uh, the Premier saying that uh, it is important that everybody gets on the same page and, and addresses the problems, the pretty much the same problems that everybody's happen, uh, having right the way across the country. And uh, whether it's housing, uh, infrastructure roads, the BC Premier was saying, uh, the ports and pipelines and things that get their market, uh, their goods to market, it just we're, we're falling behind on. So uh, again, we've got people in, in parks living in tents, We've got situations which we've known about for years and all brought to a head in a post-pandemic world. And our shortage of housing has 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 come back to bite us uh, in our lack of ability to build for whatever reason it is. Build seems to be a bad word. Uh, the newest report, and of course, this affects everything, uh, including those young people who are trying to get into the housing market or maybe the elderly that are trying to get out of uh, the housing market and move on in their life. And and these are important ways for families to save and build a nest egg over the years. And, and, and it just seems to be getting harder and harder and harder for young people to do this. A new report, and again today, interest rates 
Uh, Bank of Canada has announced interest rates uh, highest in 22 years at uh, at 5%, which, again, historically low, but considering where we've been for the last 20-some-odd years, uh, it's quite a bite for some. The newest report from the Realtor Association of Hamilton Burlington shows that home sales in the region have declined a little bit uh, in the past month, but are still up about 19% over the year. To talk more about all of this, Nicholas Von Bretto is with us, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington, broker of record with Royal LePage Macro Realty, and here now. Nicholas, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you for having me. So what are you experiencing right now, Nicholas? Where is the market? Uh, how are things for those that are trying to buy and sell? Yeah, it's a tough market with the interest rates um, increasing again today, right? We had an increase in June and now another one today. And as you just mentioned, I mean, we had a bit of a, a slowdown in the market in the month of June after having five consecutive months of um, upticks. So, I mean, I think that decline in June is because of the interest rate increase, and they've done it again now. Um, the unfortunate thing is, I mean, interest rates um, keep climbing despite being so close to the desired outcome. So it, it seems like, I mean, it's like driving the Titanic purposely into an iceberg a bit, it seems like. I really don't understand it. Do you feel the impact or realtors feel the impact of this right away immediately? Um, we do notice it because a lot of the clients that we're working with need to go get requalified with their mortgage brokers or their banks. So there is a little bit of a slowdown always after the interest rate increase, just so people better understand where their purchasing power is now after the increase. And um, and then also in regards to listings too, right? The sellers are also a little reluctant to list their property after an interest rate increase because they're also concerned of what, what this shift or what this change means for the market for them. So there's always a little bit of a slowdown a couple of weeks afterwards. And um, we've dealt with it now over the past year a number of times, and we'll deal with it this time again. Uh, and it seemed that we knew this one was coming, although I think we thought that last time, and it was the opposite reaction. Uh, is this already baked in? Is this already maybe 90 days ahead of time, or is it 90 days after you're feeling it? I don't know. I think some consumers do sort of look that far ahead, and other consumers um, I mean, are just focusing on their their house hunt or their sale. And I mean, it is a stressful um, time to go through in regards to buying or selling a home. And that, that's why it's always smart to work with a professional realtor to help you out through the process. So I really think it depends on the client and um, how so how much foresight they have and how, how much foreshadowing they're make, doing in regards to their planning in regards to what the interest rates are going to be. But a lot of people, when they get pre-approved, that pre-approval rate is locked in for a number of weeks or months. So it means someone who maybe got pre-approved last month this rate increase won't affect them, but someone who's now deciding to get in, to get into in or out of the market now, this rate increase will affect. Them. Do people try to time this stuff, Nicholas, or is it just you know what you need a house, you need a house, you got to sell your house, you got to sell your house? Um, again, people sort of know what their plans are. Um, how how does that come into play in all of this? Well, we over the past year when we've had all these different increases, we have noticed that there has been a bit of an uptick in activity, usually a week or two prior to an increase, interest rate increase, where like you said, this in this situation now, beginning in July, we knew like fairly certain that those were coming. So there was a yeah. bit more activity the past little bit because people just wanted to get locked in, right? Where, um, I mean, after interest rate increases, as I mentioned, it's usually a little bit slower. Summertime, usually a lot of action or do people relax a bit more? Because it is nice weather, good time. Relax. Good time. Sorry. Good time to be good time to be looking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
Um, you know, I think the summertime is usually a slower time of the period or a period of time. And also, I think it's one of the reasons why June also slowed down a little bit is because of the interest rate increase. But also, I think it was also showing the end of the spring market. People were more focused on I mean, the end of school for their kids, what their summer holidays were going to look like and things like that. And now, as you said, in the summertime now, people are focused on other things. The nice weather, I mean, our nice summer season is such a short season. So a lot of people want to enjoy that time and don't want to be um, house hunting. But at the same time, I mean, we, we don't have a lot of inventory out there right now. So to I mean, a lot of people are um, are taking a longer period of time to find the homes that they want to look for or they want to move to. So I think a lot of people are just continuing their hunt through the summer this year until they find the place they love. We hear so much about the shortage of supply, uh, and it's affecting everybody. And then as mm-hmm. like anything where there's a crisis, it always affects the lower income more than perhaps the middle income. Um, but but that being said, we've got uh, quite a situation here. We've got tents in, in cities and towns. I mean, it's not just like a, an inner city or a Hamilton or a Toronto problem. Uh, have you ever seen anything like this? And, 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 and again, it's just such a short supply. Yeah, we've never seen this at all. I mean, we're not as we're not as at such a short supply as we were um, last year, where we were. I think our peak of short, of supply was zero point nine months. Right now, we're at one point eight two months worth of supply, so we are better than we were at the peak of the market in twenty twenty two. But I think something like what you were talking with our situation with. Um, the homeless and the homeless situation that always I think is always delayed a bit, right? So it might be a case of a lot of people that are having yeah. difficulty affording things at the beginning of the year and last year because was low supply, they're now feeling those effects and unfortunately are um, having some difficulties. So if you're thinking of buying and selling, say between now and the fall or b- or before the new year, what should a person do to get their ducks in a row for all of this? How do you prepare? I think the number one thing is, is call one of our local RAB realtors to um, understand what the local market is. Every neighborhood, every community in our marketplace is a little different. So, I mean, speak to the local experts, local realtors. They'll be able to educate you in regards to what's happening in your neighborhood, what the price points are, what the how, what the days on market are for homes. And then obviously also we always um, encourage people to get pre-approved, have that conversation with the bank and the mortgage broker, make sure that they understand also where where what their level they can go up to. What about fluctuating prices? Because we saw, as you said, the demand was greater, it seemed, during the pandemic at one time. We're seeing the same thing with cottages, although although those fluctuate a lot more. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that note? That, that just where prices are and, and when are they good? When are they bad? Is it a good time to buy, a bad time to buy? We've seen uh, prices drop a bit. What do you say to, to clients who, who ask those questions? Well, I mean, we are starting to see multiple offers again coming through in cert- on certain properties in certain neighborhoods. So it really depends on the product or the home and the neighborhood where that's happening. And as we talked about, there's such a low inventory out there right now, and there's still a huge amount of buyers. And as you mentioned in your piece just before we got on air, you got on air with me, is mean that we have a large immigration happening too. So all those immigrants need homes to live in too and things like that. So there's a lot of pressure on the housing market in general. So our inventory is super low. So I would say to anyone, I mean, just continue hunting, continue continue looking. And when you find the place you like, I mean, move quick and get on top of it. Nicholas Von Bretto with us, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington, broker of record with Royal LePage Macro Realty. Nicholas, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Have you shopped at the Giant Tiger? Do you love the Giant Tiger? Uh, I, I, you know what? I was on a highway the other day and, and Giant Tiger has these giant trucks with instead of just like a, a typical tractor trailer, it's a tracker a tractor trailer, and then another trailer onto that. So it's like a giant giant tiger. 
uh, and of course the tail all the way down the side. Uh, well, the, the founder of Giant Tiger, Gordon Reed, has passed away, age of 89, and, uh, is clearly a Canadian su- uh, success story. To talk more about it, Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, and here now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. I'm glad to be with you. So, Marvin, this all started in the byword market of Ottawa. How did it get from there to what we're seeing today? Uh, and I understand it wasn't a, always a, a smooth road for uh, Mr. Reed. No, and no, nor was it an overnight success. So uh, if you look at a few of these big retailing giants, you often see a person who was uh, motivated to change their lifestyle. In the case of Tim Hortons, this was the Ron Joyce, the police officer who wanted something more than to walk a beat. And in the case of this, this Gordon Reed was a, a traveling salesperson in the 1950s. And as he approached his late 20s, he wanted to settle down and raise a family, and he needed to get off the road. So he decided to open a Giant Tiger in 1961, 62 years ago, in the Byward market. And that first year was hardly a ringing success. He didn't quite know what products to carry. He didn't quite know the price point to be. But to his credit, the man studied, and he worked, and he worked, and he looked at other people, and he was trying to find a niche. Uh, in the 19, in the late 60s and early 70s is when they started to expand. And generally speaking, he chose not to expand in bigger cities, but more uh, suburban or rural communities who he felt were not being well served by Canada's retailing giants of that time. Now, you have to remember, Scott, because these names are all in the history books, but mm. we're talking about the Eatons, the Simpsons, the Sears. Uh, even the Bay in those days, yeah, those were popular brands in the big urban centers, but they weren't the same in the smaller communities. Uh, and he he expanded and he grew and he, he was doing quite well. And then, of course, his fear of fears come after Woolco fails, Walmart announces they're coming into Canada. And anyone who'd studied retailing knew that Walmart was a force to be reckoned with. Lots of smaller family-owned businesses bit the dust during that period. But again, he went and studied and he felt there was a price point below Walmart, below Walmart, that he could still be profitable and serve a community. And today, if I was trying to position GT, Giant Tiger, I'd say it's above Dollarama, but below Walmart. To give you a sense of his success today, 265 Giant Tiger stores across Canada, annual sales over $2 billion. Uh, you, you know, it sounds like a Canadian version of Walmart, and we know what Walmart's strength is, is the volume, volume, volume. How does a Canadian company compete with that volume? Well, again, it was uh, through his supply chains. Uh, Mr. Reed was able to find suppliers, yes, many of them from uh, Asia, but other places who could get him product at the right price. He could put on the markup that he needed and still keep the prices below Walmart and above Dollarama. He also experimented. So there are product lines that you used to be able to buy in Giant Tiger that you didn't. Today, some things became less affordable for him. So he was constantly playing with his mix to find the right way. And this wasn't a a Gordon Reed innovation, but of course, some of your listeners would know Giant Tiger by the other name, the GT Boutique. He didn't come up with that little (laughs) brand name, but boy, once somebody started calling it the GT Boutique, he played off that. For many many years, was he always sort of the uh, the niche, the discount market? Yes, absolutely. That was where he thought he could be. 
uh, didn't want to take on the big guys with the high priced items. So he didn't offer the full department store range. You couldn't get appliances there, for an example. So he found his niche in that area, occasionally experimented outside, biggest thing being food. He didn't initially start carrying food. And today they do stock a limited amount of food. But he found that space that he was able to defend. And for people who are fans, they are big, big fans and very loyal. So what now for the GT Boutique? What, what does the future hold? Well, an interesting part of the story is that this company never went public. It has always remained in family hands. Now, Mr. Reed himself stepped down as the CEO and senior person just a couple of years ago. I think it was in 2021 um, and handed the reins over to his children. And so the plan at the moment is to keep it family owned and his the second generation have moved in. Again, I suppose a bit like the Walmart story, the next generation of Reeds are in charge and they say onward and upward. Now, 265 is a small retail chain. Uh, uh, Dollarama has exploded on the marketplace and has done even better in that low, low price segment, but they have been able to find their niche and, and they grew 20 stores over the last two years. If they keep doing this, you can imagine them having 300 locations by 2030. Giant Tiger founder Gordon Reed has passed away at the age of 89. The stores continue. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You get to the gym, you get out there, nice weather's here, you know, you want to be looking svelte, do you... Or, or does it have to be a perfect scenario? Well, I don't, you know, I need, I need two hours. And if I don't have it, I can't do it. I don't have my right shoes. I don't have this. I don't have that. And, and, you know, what do you do? Do you, uh, more weight, uh, less reps, uh, more reps, less weight? What, what, what? And, and, you know, um, as Nike says, or just do it, man. Just get out there. So says Brad Courier, PhD candidate at McMaster University and co-researcher on a new paper on the great weight debate. And Brad is with us now. Brad, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, Scott, thanks so much for having me on. Happy to be here with you. So what is the great weight debate? Yeah, well, what we did with this project is uh, try to figure out what the best weightlifting program is for people to get a little bit stronger, keep their functional capacities. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of noise. I'm sure we can all relate on social media and out and around of people saying, just like you were describing there, it was a great intro. You know, you need to lift a certain way to see benefit. And we wanted to get to the bottom of that. And really what we found was that's not the case. You know, the most important thing is that people are doing some form of strength training. The details, like if it's heavy weights or lighter weights, they don't matter as much. What about age? Because, you know, I, I've always sort of been in and out of this since I was a kid, but I'm 60 now and I notice I can't do as much. I feel it in my joints and such. But, you know, if you do less and do more reps, is that just as good? Is that as good as being a young kid and just until <laughs> your head blows up? It, it is exactly that. It's just as good. So one of the things we did in our analysis was see if these results changed with someone's age. We had people from 18 years old all the way up into their ninth decade of life included in this study. And what we found was that it does not change. It's, it applies equally to all ages. Uh, and one thing we actually did was look at functional capacity in participants over the age of 55. So even if they're lifting with light weights once a week, 
things like their walking speed or their ability to get up and out of a chair, they got better with any form of strength training. So how do you choose what to do? Is it best to go to a fitness instructor, get a program made for you? Or if you're old school, do it yourself. How do you choose, you know, uh, weight versus reps? Is it better to do more, do less, or is it a comfort zone? And whatever gets you out there every day is what you do. That's exactly it. It's a comfort zone. The The most important thing is that you're doing something consistently, and that's going to look different for everyone, right? We're all unique individuals. So it, it can take a little bit of trial and error, and it's okay to start slow, ask for help, like you're saying, maybe go to a fitness expert, try some things on your own. But when you find a few exercises that you know you really enjoy doing and you could continue consistently and sustainably, that's where you want to be because, you know, like like Nike said, maybe they'll uh, come give us some interest. You just got to do it. Just do something and you'll see these benefits. Uh, again, I've often been caught in the situation where I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. And yet, um, um, you know, at least getting out and doing something, even if it's for 20 minutes, that's a benefit. Absolutely. And time is the most highly cited reason people don't exercise and actually, when it comes to strength training, only 20% of the population does any. So what we're hoping these results you know, can help convince people of is, you know, even if you are able to just do something once a week, you know, and perhaps it's an exercise session that you can get done in 20 minutes. You know, what, what our data show is that you know, there is still market benefit to be had from sessions that short or uh, less regular. Why are weights or strength training of some sort uh, uh, much needed? Maybe people, many people go, I, I walk, I bike, that's good. Why is it important to do strength training? Yeah, so strength training is the best way to improve our muscle. And we can imagine muscle is important for letting us move around, of course, but it actually does a lot more for us. And it's our body's largest site of blood sugar disposal, actually. So what things like type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular disease or actually even all-cause mortality, our risk for these diseases or fates is actually lessened substantially when we have more muscle and healthy muscle. So weightlifting is the best way to improve it. And we lose it anyways as we age. So strength training really is integral to healthy aging. What advice do you have for those that are older that want to get into this? And well, by older, I'll say 50 plus. Yeah, we it's a moving target uh, in our lab what older means. It's usually just one year older than our boss. So uh, it's a moving <laughs> target. If you're looking to get into it, you're already on the right track. And I'll just re I'll reiterate what I said before where it's okay to start slow. Ask for help, whether that's uh, some sort of professional in your area or seeing things uh, that you want to try yourself. The the thing is that it's going to be progressive, right? And for some people, it may just be body weight type exercises for the first couple months as they are getting introduced to it, you know, even going up to a wall and doing push-ups on a wall as they're standing yeah. up, gradually progressing. Uh, you know, it's okay to start slow. And the most important thing is that you're doing something and uh, you're doing it regularly. How important is warm-up or stretching? We were talking to somebody about pickleball the other day, and it's one of the leading issues is that they're not stretching, so therefore causing uh, accidents and, and injury and such. What about warm-up and stretching before uh, strength training? Certainly very important. And I think anything that's going to get your heart rate up a little bit, you know, you feel your body temperature rise uh, just a bit before you get moving, that's, a, that's a great. And for some people, that might be going on a walk 
going up a flight of stairs, maybe if they have a, a bike that they're just going to spin on for five minutes, anything like that, where you feel your, your heart rate get up a little bit. Um, and then once you actually get into the lift, you don't need to go to whatever your, we call it working weight or whatever you're doing that day right away. You know, you can start with lighter weights and gradually mm. build up to whatever you're going to do that day. But warming up, certainly very important. We we do not want to get injured. And it's understandably a, a concern for a lot of people when they get into strength training. Brad Currier with us, PhD candidate at McMaster University, co-researcher uh, co on a new paper on the great weight debate. It's not about reps or weight. It's just getting out there and doing it. Brad, thanks for the time. Good luck. Scott, thanks so much for having me. All the best. We were talking uh, earlier on this week about uh, the NATO summit, everybody getting together, of course, uh, bolstering uh, and, and reassuring Ukraine that NATO was behind them. However, NATO stopping short of admitting uh, or, or, or uh, continuing to talk. Well, I'll leave it at that. Uh, at admitting uh, uh, Ukraine into NATO, saying conditions have to be met. A lot of fear that if uh Ukraine becomes a NATO country. Obviously, if one member of NATO's attacked, it's read as all are, and the rest come to the aid. If uh, NATO now brings in Ukraine, immediately many think that World War III will start. So there's conditions, there's times such as after the uh, the conflict is over, whenever that is, not sure. Uh, what are the conditions? Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. And with us now, Jack, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, hope you're well, too. So is this the biggest fear at this point about bringing Ukraine into NATO, is that it, once it becomes a member, boom, everybody else is immediately involved uh, completely? Uh, yes, because under, uh, under, NATO's, uh, under NATO's charter, the, the North Atlantic Treaty, an attack on one is an attack on all. However, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, World War III. I mean, it is left up to individual members how they will respond to hostilities. So this can be overblown, but uh, it is an issue that certainly dominated the uh, the summit and uh, President Biden being, uh, being determined not to admit uh, Ukraine without uh, further conditions or with a, an explicit uh, timetable basically got his way. Uh, the differences among the members were, were to some extent fudged by the communique and the uh, the fact that one of the conditions for Ukrainian accession, the uh, the the, uh, the membership plan has been uh, has been dropped, but there's still nothing like the sort of explicit timetable that President Zelensky had hoped for. So, what sort of conditions are we talking about? Democratic reform, good governance, uh, a lot of uh, good government stuff that. Uh, that in fact some current members of NATO, such as uh, such as Turkey, for example, would uh, would not really meet. But uh, but there we are. Are we to assume? Uh, they're somewhat subjective. To some way, the uh, the communique did not uh, specify in great detail exactly what these are. It simply said that conditions have to be met, and everybody has to agree exactly what that means. It is still an element of ambiguity. If conditions hadn't been met, uh, would we be doing what we're doing already? Well, probably not. <laughs> probably not. But uh, again, the, uh, the, 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 the fundamental issue is that uh, Mr. Putin, who was watching, 
what happened was looking for cracks in the facade of Alliance Solidarity. And uh, he didn't get that. The, the oh. differences were papered over. What what do you how what do you think Putin is thinking about all of this? Because again, all this started because he was concerned about uh, uh, NATO's encroachment, and and now it seems he's driven more member or, or more countries to NATO. What what is his reaction to this? Do you think? Well, his reaction is probably one of frustration. I mean, one of the animating purposes of his political career is to uh, break NATO apart ensure that its guarantees of European security are essentially hollow. That's been an ambition of his since the collapse of the old Soviet Union, which has served as a KGB apparatchik in then East Germany. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's uh, managed to do almost everything wrong in the sense that all of his actions de designed to divide NATO have actually served to reinforce its solidarity. Uh, NATO arguably has rarely been as united as it is now, at least on the uh, on the major issues. Uh, many or he thought uh, Putin thought this would be over in a matter of days. It's not an invasion. It's not a war. Yeah. It's it's just an operation. If, military it, operation was the term it, of art he employed. Yeah. If Putin can't beat Ukraine, are they hardly a superpower? Uh, no, they're not. I mean, I've, I've said for a very long time that uh, Russia, like the old Soviet Union before, is, uh, is not a superpower measured by most, uh, most criteria. It has a backward economy. It has a military that we've now seen in Ukraine is not, uh, is not up to scratch. It's basically a, a country that has survived for a long time on, uh, on energy revenues and has retained a certain degree of prestige based on the fact it has nuclear weapons. It's essentially one huge gas station with nukes. It's not a superpower. And that's ha increasingly evident to the rest of the world. Has Putin played his hand, or is, is, is his trump card the nukes? I don't think he's uh, crazy enough to resort to the nukes. Uh, he's, uh, his rhetoric has often been considerably more belligerent than his actions have been. And a world, uh, a, 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 a world at, uh, at nuclear war would not be a world in which uh, Russia would survive long. And if Russia did not survive long, he would not be, a, he would not be the, uh, the head of a state any longer. Uh, during this NATO summit, uh, good news in the sense that Turkey changed its position and was welcome, uh, welcoming Sweden. Now we're hearing that that's changed and it still has to go through Parliament and that may not happen till October and many predicted this flip-flop. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, Mr. Erdogan has, uh, has exacted a price for his uh, change of position on Sweden, namely uh, Turkey's accession to the EU. And he's going to, uh, he's going to uh, dem demand that that, uh, that be met in exchange for Sweden's admission. Uh, I'm not an expert on Turkish domestic politics, so I don't know if he is likely to have serious trouble getting this through his legislature or not, but uh, I wouldn't trust Erdogan as far as I can throw him. What is next for uh, Ukraine here? What happens when, when uh, you know, even if, uh, say six months ago, it was the, the, the spring offensive, then fall offensive, then winter coming, and all of this. What's next? Where does this grind go from here? Well, the, uh, the current counteroffensive is grinding on slowly, 
and uh, and painfully, and that's likely to continue for some time. Uh, it is uh, it is it is a difficult slog for uh, the Ukrainian troops now that they're up against Russian forces in dugout positions and uh, and in uh, in strongly fortified uh, positions. So it's not going to be easy. It's, uh, it's it's it looks as if we're going to see a prolonged war of attrition. Is it safe to say that there'll be no NATO for Ukraine, no admission to NATO for Ukraine until after this conflict is ended? I think that's pretty clear. Or could it be the catalyst for ending this? Uh, well, it uh, it might uh, it might uh, force Putin to rethink his approach and his strategy. Although I think that's unlikely. Although any display of alliance solidarity and Putin's resistance to it may catalyze further domestic opposition to him, so uh, so there we're dealing with uh, with uncharted waters. Uh, the uh, the Wagner Group and the attempted coup, then the swing around, and he's public enemy number uh, public enemy number one, and now there's a deal go- uh, done. Uh, what is the fate of of this group and its leader? Well, the fate of the group is uh, is not encouraging, although a number of its members will uh, will go on into the Russian forces. I suspect if uh, if Mr. Prigozhin were wise, he would not uh, step near any open windows or uh, eat anything that hadn't mm. been tested by a food taster. Uh, I think he's a marked man. But uh, the, the whole incident does underline Putin's weakness, the weakness of his position domestically and his failure uh, militarily. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It's kind of interesting. It depends on who you ask uh, if you're happy about Martin Short getting an Emmy nomination. Canadians, Hamiltonians especially, uh, very excited. As actors Martin Short, Luke Kirby, and Lamar Johnson are among the Canadians heading to this year's Emmys, Hamilton-born Short is nominated once again for his leading role in the murder mystery comedy Only Murders in the Building. The Emmys veteran, who now has a total of 15 nominations and two wins, scored a nod on Wednesday for his role as the eccentric uh, theater director solving crimes with two friends in his New York apartment building in order to feed their podcast, the Disney Plus series co-stars Steve Martin and Selena Gomez. So that's the Canadian story. If you read the story out of USA Today, Emmy snubs 2023. Steve Martin, Harrison Ford, Yellowstone left off the nomination list. Selena Gomez, come on. And then the first line says, Martin Short? but not Steve Martin, the Emmy voters can be harsh. That's the first uh, line of the article out of USA Today. Let's bring in Bill Brio, TV critic and author, and is with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, Yes, I'm doing fine, uh, Scott. And listen, who cannot be happy that Martin Short is nominated? I don't care if you live in the U.S. or Canada or, you know, anywhere. The guy is the greatest late-night talk show guest alive. And uh, he's fantastic on Only Murders in the Building. So let us all celebrate Martin Short. 
I remember talking to him because he's great enough to do interviews with us and, and, and talking about every time he appeared on Letterman, he'd always end with this great big show tune and what a big production and effort it was to do this every show, but every time he brought it. Yeah. And, uh, no, the late night talk show is love him because he brings the whole act and, uh, you know, in, in their act together, Steve Martin and Martin short, you know, they tour and they do comedy Yeah, and Martin short, uh, Steve Martin is always kidding Martin short. And he goes, oh, and what kind of awards do you have? And it's like uh, very few compared to Steve Martin. And that's the astounding thing is aside from two writing Emmys for SCTV back when that series was on NBC, uh, you know, um, 42 years hmm. ago, uh, he doesn't have you see all these nominations, but hasn't won. So it would be lovely to see him rewarded for a lifetime of excellence. Uh, I was surprised to see Selena Gomez. Now, obviously, she's on the show with with uh, Martin Short and Steve Martin. But is obviously with what you just said, Martin Short is very much deserving of this nomination. Yeah, he was great last season on the show. Now he's in a tough category. Look at who else is nominated: Bill Hader, who's fantastic. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, Jason Segel. Uh, you know, uh, Harrison Ford may have been snubbed, but Segel's nominated for uh, Shrinking. Uh, and Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso. So um, Jeremy Allen White, that's a tough category. I'm hoping the Jasons cast sell each other out and Martin Short sneaks in in between. Uh, longevity. How do you explain his? Shorts? Yeah. Uh, just, uh, you know, he never runs out of gas. He's like the ever-ready bunny. Uh, oh. he, everything he shows up, he just, it's a 100-watt Martin Short. He never gives anything less than excellence. Uh, you know, if you've seen him lately on some documentaries or even comedians in cars or other things. Um, he's just a very funny man who has great comedy instincts and show business is in his blood going right back to when he was a, a youngster in his parents' attic pretending to be Jerry Lewis. You know, like he loves and lives that showbiz lore it's part of him, and he just radiates it when he appears on anything. Underrated for so long, and now we're seeing the longevity. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, and I think, too, if you look at Harrison Ford as another guy, he's 80, he's been around, and he's really being celebrated these days. Uh, you know, he could have been nominated. I thought he was pretty good on shrinking. But, um, yeah, no, I think short, uh, I mean, you were playing the three amigo <laughs> intro to this yeah. uh, tribute and you know he's just always funny right and uh with all those wedding planner films when he shows up as the wedding designer he's hilarious yeah, so yeah, yeah three cheers for martin short i still remember his synchronized swimming sketch on sctv yeah. uh it was and how do you Classic. explain his relationship with steve martin the two of them have been friends forever i think um if you've ever seen their show, the way they kid each other, it's just merciless uh, yeah. and very, very funny. And I think they're just two two guys who have a lot of talent, but also are humble enough to understand their great fortune. And uh, th especially to be in your 70s uh, and have, um, I don't know if short is 70 yet, but close to it, I'm sure, um, to have this kind of um, respect and, and accolades at that age and to still be somebody who's so in demand, that's something. And, and, you know, you look at Eugene Levy and a few others from SCTV, they just Catherine O'Hara, 
Andrea Martin, who's going to play a big role this season on Only Murders in the Building. She's going to be Steve Martin's <laughs> girlfriend slash makeup attendant. Oh, um, great. Yeah. So it, 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 the, the glory still goes on and on for those of us who hold that show dear. And uh, Martin Short, certainly at the head of the pack. Emmy nominations are out, and Martin Short on the list. Bill Brio with his TV critic and author. As always, Bill, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. As we've been talking about for a good portion of the week, uh, the, uh, the, the premier's meetings, the premier's meetings, the premiers have been meeting in, uh, Winnipeg for the last three days. Provincial and territorial premiers wound down all of that in Winnipeg. What happened? What was accomplished? Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University and is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. And thanks. Hope you're well too. Peter, it seems we're having uh, seeing more of these uh, meetings between the premiers in a in a post COVID world. Is that accurate, or is this always happening, or now just the problems are similar? Well, I mean, I think it's you know twenty years that we've been having these uh, Council of the Federation meetings, uh, you know, in the summer, and in fact, you know, it goes back to when they started having golf games every summer back in the late fifties, early sixties. So, hmm. you know, the summer meeting is a, is a common one. It's longstanding, although, you know, for the past 20 years, it's become a bit more serious in terms of the preparation work that's been put into it and the attempts of the, the premiers to set a bit of an agenda in their relationships with the federal government. It, it seems, because uh, obviously Canada is a huge country, you're dividing it up into provinces and, and, and territories. Uh, obviously, the, the U.S., it's twice as many, three times as many as what we have. Uh, finding common ground difficult, it seems now they seem to be rowing in the same direction. Is that accurate? Well, I don't know. I, you know, I was seeing someone who used to go to these and talked about how his boss said, you know, this is a place where the provinces come together to go their separate ways. And in some ways, <laughs> you know, it's, it's still that way. I mean, under under our system of government, you know, our premiers are incredibly powerful people. They, you know, run our healthcare systems and our education systems and look after our highways. And I mean, it's a really important job. And in many ways, they don't want to bind their hands uh, by coming to agreements with other premiers about common action. So, you know, given given how our political system works, it's it's hard for the premiers to actually get together and you know make compromises that would uh, remove their their freedom to act. But at the same time, they feel they should because ultimately, if they want to you know move the federal government on on issues that are important to them, you know the premier of one province isn't maybe except for Quebec, but the premier of one province is unlikely to to achieve much. You know they need that common front, and so. You know, these meetings are, are always a bit frustrating because they recognize they need to cooperate. But on the other hand, they don't really want to tie their hands. It was interesting watching the news conference after it was all over. Uh, journalists were asking whether they were on common ground or they were not on common ground. And, and I can't remember which one of the premiers said it, but uh, best explained it this way, said we all have different examples of the same thing, but we're on the same page. We have we come at it from different directions, different versions of it, but we're on the same page. Um, what's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the provincial premiers are always frustrated by a federal government who they believe is kind of working on a sort of a big brother knows best principle that the federal government knows better than the provincial one what Canadians need. Um, so I think, you know, they, they share that perspective. And I think in most cases, they believe that 
to really define, you know, what is the Canadian interest. It can't be defined just by the federal government, that the provinces should also be at the table, you know, and hammering out what that is. And so I think, you know, that comes up in that as well. But, you know, again, you know, to say that is one thing, uh, but to actually say what the provincial interest is, is another. And as you point out earlier, I mean, there's a big difference between, you know, Ontario, a province of 14 million people, with a very uh, diverse economy, very high rates of immigration, and uh, Prince Edward Island, you know, which is under mm. 200,000 people, a uh, very different economic basis. I mean, it's, you know, it's a place that's less than half the size of Hamilton that has to run a province. So, you know, you know, between those extremes, it's really hard to find things on which the provinces all agree or where they, you know, see the same solution to a common problem. We remember uh, during and post-pandemic, the, the big issue was health care and the premiers wanted the prime minister to come to the table and come up with some sort of national strategy uh, for health care. Uh, this time out, they're calling for the same sort of national strategy for housing and infrastructure. Uh, again, we seem to be seeing the same issues right the way across the country, whether it's, you know, unaffordable housing or tent cities and parks and such. Uh, is there any chance that we're going to see something like that on infrastructure and housing? Yeah, well, I mean, it's hard to know on housing. I mean, they're the federal government promised a lot and haven't really delivered a lot of action in, in five, six years. And I think Canadians should ask some questions about that. On infrastructure, you know, the, the government was elected in 2015 and had a 10-year plan, and that's nearly up. And, you know, they've promised to bring forward a new plan, I believe, uh, in the fall about, you know, where they would go on from there. And I think for the provinces, the interest is to try and have a voice in what that plan looks like, uh, to have a certain degree of flexibility and and to actually have the provinces having a say in where that money goes. And so, you know, I think there's a concern in some provinces that the federal government will want to send that money directly to municipalities so they get to to choose ultimately where in the country it goes and, and what the priorities are, whereas the provinces, you know, may be saying, no, they want a hand in that so that the money goes to areas of growth or to particular priorities around uh, housing and transit uh, that may not be shared by the, the federal government. So I think on that, the, the idea is that there is money coming, but it's probably that the provinces want a lot more say in terms of how it's spent. You know, both, uh, you know, for, for good policy reasons of maybe making sure it goes to the best places, but I think also uh, for political reasons of being able to claim credit rather than the federal government being able to do that. Uh, is housing at a, at, a, at a new era now? I mean, in the focus that is on it. We remember, obviously, the middle class, a lot of people having problems buying houses. But if there's a problem in a middle class, it's going to be even bigger in those trying to join the middle class. Does this bring it to the forefront? I mean, Peter, we have uh, people in, living in tents in all sizes of communities right the way across the country. It's not like a, an urban problem. Uh, is this bringing it? Will this bring the housing issue to people's attention? Well, I mean, I think the housing issue is in people's attention. I, I think the, the issue is more, will they ever believe any government has uh, solutions to that problem? Yeah. Um, and, and so we'll see, uh, you know, and, and it's a multifaceted problem because, you know, at one level, it's, you know, can people have access to even just a place to live? If they have access to that, can they stay in there without being renovicted and so on? Up to people who, you know, have some stability in housing, but actually uh, have this dream of home ownership and, and having access to to that. So, I mean, there's a bunch of different uh, problems uh, nested one within the other, but on none of them, I, I don't think people get a sense that our governments are doing much to move forward. Um, but I think to date, you know, no party has really been able to galvanize Canadians to say, here's an answer, here's how we do it differently. And so I think both the federal and the provincial governments in many ways are are treading water and trying to be able to be seen to doing things. But 
without necessarily really uh, unlocking any new ways of you know providing more rental housing uh, or more housing in general. Uh, are we behind the eight ball now? Because we haven't been building for the last 20, 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there you go. You know, ultimately, <laughs> you know, when you have a growing population uh, and you, you don't look after things like, is there an adequate stock of, yeah. of rental housing? Is the existing stock being uh, renovated? Uh, you know, if, if you aren't if you aren't paying attention to things like that in, in the long run, you know, particularly with certain kinds of, of housing, uh, especially for people with lower incomes, um, yeah, you do end up in a situation yeah. where there aren't any obvious fast solutions. Although, you know, again, I'm not sure our governments are trying really hard to innovate with new ideas about how you could expand uh, the, the housing supply for people in those income categories. Peter Grant with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. As always, Peter, thank you for the time. Be well. And you too. Bank of Canada rate has uh, raised its benchmark interest rate by another 25 basis points, 5%. Uh, the biggest rise, uh, the biggest rate since uh, 2001, 22 years. Overall inflation rate cooled to about 3.4%. Uh, is this much pain needed to bring us down another percent? Because the sweet spot is around 2 we're at 3.4. Let's bring in Eric Cam, professor of economics with Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Hope you are too. So, Eric, I'm just, I just happen to be watching something on uh, a news network in regard to uh, the, the, the rate hike from the Bank of Canada. And their point was what I said just earlier. Uh, their target is around 2.2% uh, inflation. We're sitting at about 3.4. Is it worth this other rate hike for that extra point? Well, I don't think so. I mean, in the long run, the Bank of Canada is transparent and open, Scott, about what they want to do. They want to get inflation, the year-to-year -year increase in the price level, to 2%. And why do they want to do that? Because they believe that's a stable number that creates economic growth without triggering inflation. So they've, they're, they're clear. It's on their webpage. That's where they want to get to. And I don't have a problem with that. And really, if you look at the numbers over the last 20, 25 years, they seem to be right. That does seem to be a stable number. The criticism that I have and many economists have is this dogged determination and speed to get there. I mean, this speed of adjustment is frankly dangerous. We have now gone from 0.25 to 5%. It's a staggering, staggering increase. And we've done so in really what is warp speed. And we can talk about it. But what scares me about that is what is the cost? of the speed of adjustment that I think is going to be twofold. Uh, number one, I, I look at the labor market and I go, you know, the labor market's been fairly unaffected by the inflation rate so far. But what if that gives out? So what if this gives cause to now a decrease in labor, a decrease in the demand for labor, and we send the labor market into a tailspin? That's number one. And number two, and even more dangerously, the housing market. And I'm telling you nothing that all of our listeners know, which is the price of borrowing has gone up in a ridiculous amount, in a ridiculous amount of time. And so what is that going to do? Well, people are saying, well, what if you have to renegotiate your mortgage? And I did some research, four out of five mortgages in Canada, Scott, four out of five still have to be renegotiated. That means that 80% of the mortgages in this country are going to go from about 1% to 2% mortgage rates 
to now probably seven or eight or more because the Bank of Canada is whispering doing this one more time before the year is over. So I apologize for the long-winded response, but I'm very, very worried about what happens next. Is the speed, you talk about the speed in which they've done this, uh, obviously too quickly, is the speed in which they've done this as a result of uh, too much stimulus in the first place? They're trying to pull it all back. Well, yeah, I mean, not to let the Bank of Canada completely off the hook, um, I have more faith in them than I do with the government of Canada. And so I sympathize, listeners know I sympathize with the bank for what they were handed on a silver or not so silver platter by the government after the pandemic. So they they told the Bank of Canada, we've given this, again, ridiculous amount of stimulus in this ridiculously short period of time, which should never have happened. We all kind of understand that now. And they asked the bank to fix it. And so the bank said, well, there's only one thing for us to do. We only have two bullets to fire. We can play with interest rates or play with the money supply, and we're going to take the interest rate route. So the bank has been handed a terrible, terrible job to do. Um, but I would argue, what's the hurry? I mean, I know you want to get things back to 2%. That makes good sense to me also. But you're you're going to start to do this, and you already have, on the backs of what we call hardworking average Canadians. And I don't think it's a luxury, Scott, to put a roof over your head no. or buy groceries. I really don't think this is asking a lot. But and it's, ama- it's amazing how some are saying, you know, the kids just have to learn today not to live with what their their parents had. It's like, good luck telling that generation. I mean, you got to be kidding me. We all know home ownership is one of the best ways to re- to increase your personal wealth. Well, that's right. And homeownership shouldn't be something that the super rich can afford. And homeownership shouldn't be something of a pie in the sky idea that when your children are in high school, you say, well, if you play your cards right, one day you'll be able to own a house. This is preposterous. And this is what I'm afraid the Bank of Canada, they're not forgetting it. They're they're not stupid. In fact, Dr. Macklem is super smart. And he and his team understand. They know what's going on, which really makes me, in a sense, wonder why so fast? Who's telling them to step on the gas pedal at such an unprecedented rate? But you know, it's like you said, if you look at the stimulus, if you look at what happened, the whole set of events since about 2019 leaves everybody wondering why? Why so fast? Why so much? And I don't have any answers to this, only that again, I only have one horse in this race. That's taxpayers, that's consumers. And I dread what's happening to a great amount of our population if it hasn't already, Scott. Uh, another question you probably can't answer, is this it? I mean, they're, they're hinting it could be more if needed. I, I guess that's a crystal ball question. It's a crystal ball question, but, well, since I'm here and it's not for my good looks, that I can promise you. Yes, I think that rates are going to go up one more time during the year. In fact, I said on Roy Green on the weekend I thought there was going to be one more increase, but I thought it would wait till September because I thought the bank might allow people to kind of get their feet under them a little bit more. But now that they've pulled the trigger on this one, I absolutely wouldn't be surprised if they do it again in September. And we do this again, although I hope I speak to you before that. And, and, And I just shake my head because I just wonder with disposable income going down the way it is right now. I mean, is that worth the price of bringing inflation down at hyperspeed? And I don't think it is. Uh, the premier's meeting in Quebec, or sorry, in uh, Winnipeg over the last three days, and on the top or one of the top agenda uh, items was a national strategy for infrastructure and housing. Are you surprised that that's a a topic at 
uh, a, a premier's conference or the fact that people are living in tents in, in parks, whether it's big towns, small towns, cities, urban centers, what have you, are people finally realizing, hey, you know what? Uh, for some stupid reason, we haven't been building houses for the last few decades. I think that that's very accurate. But when you want to talk about stupid, uh, I think we've got other things to look at ourselves in the mirror right now. Like we have a port strike in British Columbia hmm. that's costing about $5 billion a week. That doesn't seem to be a priority. And let me tell you, that's not helping with bringing the price levels down. So while sure, this infrastructure thing is really smart, we do need more housing. We need a lot of things and we need a government that's forward looking and doesn't make idiotic statements like, well, I don't understand monetary policy. I don't understand anything going on right now. And it makes me wonder if these two branches, the the finance at the government and the Bank of Canada, are they talking? And if so, what the hell are they talking about? Because they seem to me to be at opposite ends of the spectrum and they seem to be pulling uh, not in the same direction on the rope. So and unfortunately, who gets caught? We know who gets caught. It's middle and low income earners who are going to pay the price. And as I said, 80 percent, Scott. Four out of five mortgages are still going to come due in the next couple of years. And heaven help us when that happens. Eric Cam with us, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. As always, Eric, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Stay healthy, Scott. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're having fun and a great day. Wow, yes, I am. How about you? That's very chipper and enthusiastic. You know why? Because I got absolutely nothing now. Honestly, I have nothing left to say at uh, 5.50 in the evening, so I'm going to ask you what's on your show today, which is really the whole purpose of these little breaks that we do. Well, uh, you know what? I'm not even going to... Well, I can tell you what's coming up. We're going to be talking about uh, the tax thing that we've been dealing with with the city and what people think about that. We're going to be talking to them. You know, this is an issue, man, because they're talking about double-digit yes, uh, increases, and but in in the world that we're living in, are you surprised? Yes, I am. And I'll tell you what, well, yes and no. I'll tell you why I am, because I think that there is no politician who could possibly be as inept or blind to what's going on and not understand that these kind of things are going to be crushing to people. The why I'm not surprised is no politician, it seems anymore, wants to have the cojones or whatever the female version of that is when we're talking to be equal, um, to say, you know what, there's some things we're going to have to cut and we're going to take the political lumps, but we just can't just keep adding inevitably, indefinitely. And at some point we have to cut something, but nobody will cut anything because you know what happens, Scott? You, as soon as you say, we're going to cut something, somebody screams, people will die. Okay, so we're going to cut garbage from once every week to once every two weeks. People will die, Scott. <laughs> we're, we're going to cut uh, road clearings. People will die. I mean, it's the it's the, like the go-to thing, and no one will do anything. So we just continue to add and continue to add, and it, it becomes an inevitable story that it's just going to keep going up. You know, you bring up the garbage issue, which, yeah, and Hamilton Weekly Garbage, is that what you're speaking of specifically? yeah. yeah. And, and I live in Halton and it's every other week, uh, recyclable every single week, but then the big garbage is one and once every two weeks. And I honestly don't see what the hell the problem is because, uh, nowadays we recycle probably more than we throw it anyway. So, uh, again, I, I just don't know why people can't get their head around that or just look beyond their borders to other municipalities that seem to be making it work. Okay. So, so a, a couple of things on that one. First, 
I don't know that it's going to work if you say you can only still throw out the one bag. You may have to say you're allowed more, but we're only going to come around every second week because it's saving cost. Sure. But I don't think it's over the top to say to people when they say, well, we'll have rats. No, if if they're going to cut this back, you have a responsibility to either keep it in your garage or in a closed garbage pail or something else. If we're going to ask them to do something, we can do something as well. This is the other problem, Scott, is that sometimes we, and it's not always just the politicians, we demand things and won't take on any of extra responsibility ourselves. If well, we, people don't people don't like change, right? Well, this has been going on forever. It's like home mail it delivery. It's like home mail delivery. We've been having it forever, so we still need it. There's a lot of things like this. There's a lot of things like this that we, I mean, when was it? Three years ago, four years ago here in Hamilton when the mail delivery thing, and it was an enormous <laughs> eruption. Yes. It was an eruption. I remember doing lots on the show. Meanwhile, they've been, they've been pulling, they've been putting up super mailboxes since the mid eighties. You have a situation I was talking with it with Don Robertson on Monday. We got onto a tangent and we were talking about bike lanes in the middle of a snowstorm in winter. You go downtown sometimes and the bike lanes are scraped down to the concrete and the roads and sidewalks aren't cleared yet. Maybe, you know, if you're looking around and you see nobody oh, is riding in trouble, uh, fine, you're going to get in trouble. There's, there's six people who are riding their bike in a blizzard. There are a few, but there aren't yeah, many, but yeah. there's way more people who have to get somewhere by walking or by driving in those circumstances. Maybe we say if it's very unlikely that a lot of people are riding their bikes, we don't have to do those lanes first. And we can save some money there. There's Scott, there's things. And again, that doesn't mean bike lanes are bad. It doesn't mean cyclists are bad. No, it doesn't mean, no. it means we are, we don't have the money that we need to do everything. Let's start picking some things that are the less priority issues and Here, start let me cutting get, them. Let me give you an example of this where, you know, in a big story today about the city and the government, the provincial government coming together on some sort of green, uh, green belt solution and whatever. And they're popping open the green belt because municipal municipalities aren't building on the land that they already have. But here we are whining about the green belt and we got people living in tents. We have people living in tents. They have not built enough housing for uh, prior to the pandemic for the uh, 25 years prior to the pandemic. And now we're seeing the results of this and still people are going, Ooh, we can't interrupt the green belt. We can't bother the green belt. We don't have any houses. That's why people are living in tents. And it's every every walk of life, uh, whether you're in the middle class or those willing to join it. It's just people just don't seem to get it. You know, it, here we are screaming about the green belt and people across the country are living in tents because they can't get a house or afford one. It, it is. There are. Many problems. There are obviously, there are many problems, but you know, and, and again, back to the budget thing, we need, I think, and this is what we're going to be asking, would you prefer higher taxes, like to the point of 10% or would you prefer cuts that may touch you, that may affect you, but that some things have to be cut in order to get these costs down? The problem, as I say, Scott, is cutting stuff. No one has ever put up a plaque in a building and they being a politician who cut something. They love building bridges and putting in community centers because they get to have a bronze plaque and it says this building yeah. was done by the under the auspices of councillor so-and-so, whatever. No one has ever had a ribbon cutting for cutting a program. And we don't like, they don't like to do it because it, it's, you don't win any votes when you cut something. But I don't, think gonna, I don't think they're going to win any votes when they come in. If they come in with a 10 or 11 or 12% tax increase, they're going to be very surprised, I think, when they see what kind of reaction they'll get. 
It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be a fascinating year to watch uh, from all aspects. Uh, Scott Radley with us, and the Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To leave us with the last word, Maxine emails, people complain about the green belt when we have people living in tents. Time to get the big bad developers to build. Keep right except to pass. Night.